You love technology, you love your privacy, and you cherish freedom and the Constitution. This is our culture and our way of life, and it's under attack from powers that be who want to know all that we do while we know very little of what they do. Restore the Fourth is an organization seeking to restore balance, and we need your help. Please head to RestoreTheFourth.com slash donate to help support our work. That's RestoreTheNumber4TH.com slash donate. Thank you for your support. Your government doesn't feel you can be trusted with a powerful weapon, your thoughts. Encryption is a munition, and in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it is your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots, episode number four. Recorded on January 27th, 2017. The Patriots and its active members have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast dated December 5th. 2016. My name is Alex Matthews. I am the national chair of Restore the Fourth, which hosts the Privacy Patriots podcast. And I am Mosca Yosef. My day job is that I'm an attorney, and my night job is making fun of Alex's obsession with Robin Thicke's blurred lines. Uh, thank you very much, Muska. <laughs> Welcome to Privacy Patriots, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. We are going to begin the show with um, f just one from among the many anxiety-inducing measures of the new Trump administration. And we're going to be discussing uh, the so-called Muslim ban and the efforts that are happening in immigration law and some of the privacy implications of that. So... Musco, would you like to begin by describing basically what has been happening and why it is disturbing? I would love to. So, as you can imagine, the Muslim ban, the executive order, was very personal to me. As you know, I uh, was born in Afghanistan and my entire family uh, escaped in the 80s. And we were lucky that during that time, there was a very good relationship with the United States. So we were welcomed in with open arms and um, especially seeing everything going on right now with the Syrian refugee crisis. I can't help but think of what would happen if my family had stayed or, you know, just just recognizing that that very well could have been my family. Um, but just to go into the the details of the executive order. So this was very, very um, upsetting to me. Did you get a chance to read it? In depth, I did. Um, so the first thing that jumped out at me, and because you know, when you're the only attorney in the family or among your friends, everyone immediately comes to you with every question, thinking that you'd automatically know the answer. So people have been coming up to me saying, you know, is this constitutional? And um, I, and you know, I had to actually do a lot of research on this because I wasn't sure off the top of my head um, if this was done, if there was any kind of religious-based discrimination that was being done to uh, citizens. Obviously, there would be equal protection issues, First Amendment issues, and whatnot. But because this is um, being inflicted as an immigration policy, and the citizens are not, um, they're not citizens, they're immigrants, nationals from other countries, the big problem is that the Constitution doesn't necessarily protect them. 
So I'm going to get into a little bit of law. How does that sound to you? Oh, that sounds like the best thing to know about <laughs> to protect us. So let me be educated as well okay, as our listeners. Okay. Well, the big problem that I found when I started researching this is that there is actually a lot of case law. And the case law all does not uh, sound good. And the reasoning for that is that the judicial branch pretty much just defers to Congress and the executive branch on any immigration policy. So anybody that grew up in the United States has heard from, you know, first grade that the uh, legislative branch, what do they do? They create the laws, right? And then the executive branch enforces the law and the judicial branch interprets the law, right? Now, that is true in every single circumstance except for immigration, which I thought was really interesting. So in immigration, there was a case back in the 1880s, which was called the Chinese um, Exclusion Act. And I remember reading these cases in law school, and they were among some of the worst cases to read. I would put them up there with Karamatsu and Plessy as one of the most disturbing cases. And it's still good law, and this is the problem. So this 1888 case pretty much said that the Congress had created a statute that said that Chinese nationals could not come to the United States. And at the same time, it said that Chinese Americans would be deported unless they could show a certificate of residency or, my personal favorite, have a white person attest to the fact that they were residents of the United States. Holy smokes. And this went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, well, we are not going to address this issue. This is the right of the political branches, which are the legislative branch and the executive branch. And we're just going to defer to whatever they say. We are not going to give any judicial review on whether or not this is constitutional. Okay, then. And this has been called the plenary powers doctrine. So if you remember one thing, remember the plenary powers doctrine. That is terrifying. And the fact that this is still in place is very disturbing because its application to the Muslim ban means that if anybody tries to bring a case against this on constitutional grounds, the Supreme Court might not even hear it. And um, that's very problematic. There's been, uh, you know, over 120 years full of case law, people constantly trying to bring a case similar to this. But every single time, either the executive branch or the legislative branch makes a policy um, based on immigration, the judicial branch will not review it. I had heard that... The fact that all seven countries selected just so happen to be Muslim-majority countries um, may make the policy more challengeable than if they had just gratuitously added in um, North Korea and, I don't know, Palau and Tonga. Right. Um, So is there any validity to that? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because the one thing that a lot of legal scholars have brought up was that the plenary power has been um, plenary plenary power doctrine in particular dealing with immigration issues because plenary power just means complete power, right? But this is specifically complete power over immigration. It has been challenged on grounds of gender, nationality. It's never it's never been challenged under the grounds of religious discrimination. So some scholars think maybe 
if we can somehow prove that religion is different from nationality, is different from gender discrimination, and therefore should have a different um, – be scrutinized differently, perhaps that's one way. Mm-hmm. But as you know me, of course I figured out the solution to this. Of course. Of course I that's did. That's why we had you on the exactly. show. Exactly. So this is what I have – been, you know, trying to figure out all week long is we've got to do something about this plenary powers doctrine. It needs well, to yes. die. This right? sounds, this it sounds to like die. a bad doctrine. It sounds is like it, a horrible doctrine. It sounds like Trump's absolute favorite doctrine. Oh, of course. But... Of course. But you know what? Actually, Trump is not the first president who has done this before. So Carter did this during mm-hmm. with Iranian hostages. Oh. Reagan did this with Cuban hostages. And Obama also did this, but he did this in particular with um, – sorry, I said hostages. I meant Iranian nationals, Cuban nationals. Okay. Um, and Obama refused to um, refused to admit any nationals from countries that were um, committing human rights violations. But don't, don't quote me on that. The Obama one I'm not as familiar with. Okay. But anyway, this isn't the first time a president has done something like this under the plenary powers doctrine. So this is what I came up with, right? I need to be getting paid for this, these things I come up <laughs> with. Um, George Soros, if you hear me. I, oh, yes. I need my student loans to be paid, so please pay I would, me. I would love some Soros dollars. Right? Like yeah. that's, can we just stop and say how ridiculous this George Soros stuff was? All the people on Facebook that it was saying that everyone on the Women's March was being paid by George Soros. You were on the Women's March, right? Of course I was. And I was. if I was getting paid by George Soros, do you think I would be here on a Friday night with you? <laughs> no, I would be <laughs> in some warm destination uh-huh. being fed grapes by the vine. By men with oiled pectorals. That's where I would be if George Soros was really paying me. Well, it, it depends whether he thinks that you've done enough for his agenda. Maybe that is you're true. just proving your worth. That, is, that is true. And so maybe if this doctrine me, that you're just about to expound upon will be the key exactly. this to is the getting key. a fortune. That is my goal for this podcast is to get to oh, George Soros to hear me and yes. pay for my so, student loans. George, if you're out there, listen up. <laughs> this is going to be good. Shoot, go ahead. Okay, so if you think about... Um, what this really is is kind of a standing issue, and I don't know if you're familiar with standing in in constitutional context or legal context. Are you? Let's just briefly sketch it for the audience. So, in order to bring a case to the to the court on a constitutional basis, you have to say, as the plaintiff, that you were somehow personally harmed or injured by this violation. Okay, mm-hmm. so you can't just willy nilly and go up and say, "Oh, this is unconstitutional." You have to show this is how I specifically was harmed by this. Correct. So it'd have to be brought by somebody who was refused admission to the United States. I'm glad that you brought that up. So this is what I think is the problem, is that all of the case law, the majority of the case law has been focused on the immigrant who has not been um, admitted into the country. So it's really been a threshold standing issue where the, the courts say you do not have standing because you are not a citizen. You do not have constitutional rights that are protected. Therefore, mm-hmm. we're just going to defer to, you know, the legislative branch or the um, executive branch. So mm-hmm. I think that has been a problem. What I have come up with and what George Soros is going to pay me for okay. is instead of thinking about it that way, what if we instead – had the petitioner, the plaintiff, be an American citizen who is claiming that this immigration policy, this ban on Muslims, is violating their constitutional rights under the First Amendment for association. So Hmm. 
that would show a personal injury that a citizen with constitutional rights has. And for example, you could do something like family relationships. And we all know about instances where there is one person in one, in the United States and someone from another country who's trying to come in. I have right. all of my mother's side of the family is in Afghanistan. So you could claim that your rights of association are being violated because of this. And given that the courts pay particular attention to um, marital associational exactly. rights, what you really need is, say, a Muslim woman in the United States whose husband has had his visa voided as a result of this policy and therefore is deprived of um, those associational benefits and can bring suit. Exactly. And another thing that you could do is universities who want to bring people to the United States to speak, you know, speaking events could also claim similar. You know, I think it'd be stronger if there was a family connection, especially a mm -hmm. marital connection. But there are other ways around it. If we can somehow get the a citizen that has a powerful um, association claim they might have the ticket to get in where a citizen may not. Um, and that is something that I think needs to be reevaluated. Now, the, I didn't come up with this idea. There have been other similar cases where this has happened. No, no don't jeopardize your payment. I, I know. George Soros, just listen to me, though. Here, here's, the, here's the catch. So there are two cases. What I'm expecting is that these two cases could be seen as uh, potential problems, but I'm going to spin this so that I get my student loans paid for. Okay. So there was a case in 1980 called Clydenstein v. Mandel, and then there was another 1977 Fiolo v. Bell. Now, my pronunciation is awful, so mm -hmm. I could be wrong with how those are. But pretty much in both those cases, a citizen along with a immigrant brought a case um, uh, and in both of those cases, the Supreme Court adamantly said, no, we're still going to um, apply the plenary power. Oh. But one thing that what stood out to me is that in both those cases, there were very, very strongly worded dissents. And those dissents came from Douglas and Marshall. Mm -hmm. And. Let me just quote to you some of what they've said, because I actually think this is one of those cases where the dissents of yesterday could become the majority of tomorrow. Okay. So this is something that Marshall said in a dissent in the Fiolo case. Quote, discrimination among citizens cannot escape traditional constitutional scrutiny simply because it occurs in context of immigration legislation. So... To me, and, and there's a lot more, and I could go into a lot more of what the dissents say, but I think there is a powerful statement. That was both those cases. One was in 77, one was in 80. It is now 2017. Mm -hmm. So I think the tides have changed, and this could be a case where bringing it again, where it is a citizen instead of an immigrant, might be the key around this plenary issue. I can see that this could be a really interesting way in. Um, and... I I think that uh, whatever Soros pays you probably will not be enough. <laughs> Let's explore a little bit um, some of the privacy implications of the um, efforts to ban Muslims from certain countries from coming into the country. So one element that was coming up as far as I understood it 
and obviously the plans are vague at the moment, um, is that the Customs and Border Police would be responsible for asking questions of um, people coming in from Muslim countries to establish sort of the kind of Islam that they believed in, like exactly. whether it was a government-approved version of Islam <laughs> or not. Like, um, is it the kind of Islam where they, where, where they are going to, as they might think of it, put Sharia law over on everybody else in this country? Oh God, Sharia law. That term alone is uh, yeah. st strikes fear in everybody's hearts, and for no apparent reason. I know if it were translated as, say, Islamic jurisprudence, exactly, then, it, exactly. then it, it might strike a little less fear. So, <laughs> um, for, so um, analyzing that and trying to get into the details of people's belief, and this has struck me as something that is potentially um, very intrusive because I can tell you that if there were a detailed government interrogation into my own religious beliefs then they would uncover some pretty strange stuff oh yes like you you really don't want to dabble into theology with Alex this is a bad <laughs> avenue for any conversation right and I sense that immigration officers should not be trained theologians right. or should not be expected to be trained theologians so right. can you talk about um, what little we know right. about what may happen in that area Yes, but first I have to write read the funniest quote from this executive order Please because do. this is this is given instructions on you know how to find out who the bad guys are. Okay, what, and tell me if this sounds familiar to you. If this these characteristics, you know, just ring a bell. Okay, <clears throat> quote: The United States should not admit those who engage in acts of bigotry, okay, and hatred, okay, including honor killings, other mm. forms of violence against women or the persecution of those who practice other religions, or those who oppress members of one race, one gender, or sexual orientation. Unquote. So what you're saying is <laughs> that the majorities in Congress and the current appointees to the administration should not travel abroad because otherwise <laughs> they will fall afoul of this policy coming back in? Or Exactly. I just found that hysterical when I read that. That's the criteria of, of the kind of people we don't want in this country and the criteria okay. that could have somebody turned away. It was just my favorite. You know, when I was reading through it, I highlighted it and put little stars and little hearts. Little hearts. And you know. Did you put stickers on it? I did. I put glitter? little hearts. I put little hearts just like you do around Robin Thicke's face. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, Speak, speaking of blurred lines, let's... Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah. So I find this incredibly problematic on a privacy um, perspective. I think asking and trying to figure out... Um, what religion someone is when they are coming in. Um, not only is it in incredibly uh, intrusive, but it also would be very easy for somebody to lie about it. So mm -hmm. I think that um, it's just it's not effective in trying to find out whatever they're trying to find out. To some extent, though, they've always had that problem in immigration um, law, like when you are um, for applying for permanent residency, they make you form, fill out a form. I had to do this years ago. Right. Um, 
where they say, um, have you ever been involved with the Nazi government of, <laughs> in Germany of 1939 to 45? Um, right. Have you ever been involved in the September 11th, 2001 right, attacks? Right. And very I, subtle, very yeah, subtle questions. I know. I, was, I, I, I imagine, you, you know, stereotypical Islamic terrorist guys sitting there and going, ah, oh, they are so cunning, they get you every way. Oh. Yes. Oh, my God. Was that your attempt at an Arab accent? It was. It was terrible, oh my God. wasn't it? Can we just make a rule that you're never allowed to try to do accents <laughs> again? You're lucky that you're blessed with the British accent. Don't ever try to do that again. Which, of course, is completely fake. Oh, of course it's fake. I I could tell the minute I saw you that you were really like from the Rust Belt or something. No, no, I grew up from, got the, that I grew up on the Cape look. right by you. Oh, stop. Yeah. <laughs> this, but, is, this is why you and I both have difficulty pronouncing things. You know, it's the oh, Cape Cod thing. Well, I have no problem pronouncing anything. It's, you just said that you had problems pronouncing okay, things. Okay, when it comes to random ah. names and case law from like yes. ages ago, yes, I do. But, okay. but anyway. my knowledge of mythical, stereotypical Islamic terrorists is kind of <laughs> as shaky as your knowledge of 19th century plaintiffs in case law. So, okay. Okay. You got me. You yes, got me. I did. So, yes, You just exactly. want to establish that now. <laughs> Before that is on, on the record. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, is, so interrogating people on their religious opinions is something that is dangerous. Um, it is, to some extent, is it is an extension of um, immigration policies that have been effect, in effect under the Obama administration that yep. ha that have in themselves been. Um, created out of some bigoted assumptions about Muslims. And so right. we don't want to depict it as being an exclusively sort of Republican matter. But right. I think that this is something that looks like it's metastasizing and that oh, is definitely. an issue. The thing, too, that I wanted to point out is I even think the term temporary ban mm -hmm. is somewhat misleading because if you actually look into the the guts of the executive order, there's some pretty remarkably startling things in there that could have um, serious privacy implications. Um, I don't know if you noticed. Um, so one thing that it requires is it requires that the Secretary of Homeland Security, the Secretary of State and the Director of the National Intelligence come up with this report. Uh -huh. And the report is pretty much um, they're going to ask a bunch of countries to um, to give them information on nationals before they enter the United States. And this information has to um, prove that they will not be detrimental to the United States. And they will be given a 60-day notice to comply, these countries. Mm -hmm. If they do not comply, then none of those nationals will be able to enter the United States until they comply. So it could not just be a temporary ban. It could be a while. And if you think of countries like Iran... I don't know if Iran is ever going to comply to this. Uh, I'm not sure. Is Iran? Iran's on the list, right? Iran is on the list. It, it did occur to me that Syria, you know, I hear that the normal legislative processes may be a little bit disrupted in Syria right now. And so, oh, yeah. and so my question is, in the Syrian parliament, is this going to like get through committee and are exactly. they going to be able to have a vote? And exactly. however they do it, um, is a 60-day timetable like at all realistic? Exactly. So I think that to me was the more startling thing. Of course, what, what the executive order says is 
uh, until, um, you know, these different agencies get together and come up with this report, there's going to be a temporary ban on those seven countries for 30 days. Mm. So it, it makes it seem like it's something temporary. But then, you know, within 60 days, if the countries don't comply, mm-hmm. um, it could be um, longer than that. Right. And and it's it's also very vague about what information do they need? And I think that's what you're getting at is what information do they need um, to disclose in order to justify admittance into the United States? And this is a very hard thing because ultimately it is shifting the burden onto the visa applicant to prove their innocence right. um, and to prove that in the future they will not be a threat to anything that the U.S. government wants to do. Exactly. And speaking as somebody who went through the immigration process and then became a um, an activist for surveillance reform <laughs> opposing the U.S. government's mass surveillance programs around the world. Um, I ha- I do not think that back in 1999, when I was starting this process, I would have been able to advance any evidence that showed that I was not going to do that in the future. Exactly. Well, the whole concept of this is, um, you know, stepping back from my legal uh, standpoint, just thinking, you know, as a uh, in a moral standpoint, what this really is about is presupposing that Muslims from these countries will be a threat to the United States right. on the basis of absolutely no information. And not on the basis of particularized probable cause or reasonable exactly. suspicion. And that brings us back to the Fourth Amendment. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um and, and, you know, I think that this is something that's not only happening for uh, – for admittance into the United States, but it's happening for immigrants already in the United States, undocumented immigrants. This notion that um, that you are a criminal and that you do not have any privacy rights and that um, one thing also that I'm not sure if you saw, I don't know if it was in this executive order or another one, was that um, that there is going to be a list of the crimes committed by um, undocumented um Immigrants on a weekly mm-hmm. basis. Did you hear about this? Yes, I did. And um, and I was thinking, wouldn't it be lovely if there was a weekly list of the crimes committed of our elected officials? Hmm. That would be fascinating. It's almost as if you could have a paper. You could call it a newspaper <laughs> and they could consider it their job to report on the misdeeds of those in power. Exactly. Like that would be mind blowing. Yeah, you know that would what be I pretty mean? cool. Um, but, you know, it all just goes back to this general notion of um, – Casting certain people as criminals and um, those people happen to be immigrants. Those people happen to be Mexicans. They happen to be Muslims. Um, and, and that is very problematic. And I think that's why we have to think of a way, a legal framework to try to combat this, um, especially it, when the, you know, the plenary power doctrine is so strong. Um, if that at all could get us to. Uh, shake things up so that the the judicial brands can do what they should be doing, which is reviewing the constitutionality of anything that comes out of either of the other branches. So is it possible to have a trade-off here where we do not have um, this this ban on people from certain countries because of nothing that they have individually done. But nonetheless, we are able to deport U.S. citizens like, say, Robin Thicke, who have indulged <laughs> in domestic violence and in... Um, in uh, Robin Thicke really is on your mind at all times. You know that he's in, in the news. Is that why you relate here yeah. recording? Because you were reading up on Robin Thicke. 
Well, I thought it was an important precondition for doing this podcast today because <laughs> I knew you were going to ambush me on anything to do with Robin Thicke. So, ambush you know. is a strong way to phrase what I do. Okay. You know, I think it would, I think it'd be considered something, something else. Uh-huh. Like, like a sneak attack. I, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, torture perhaps. Oh yeah, but like not really torture, like um, like what do they call it? Um, enhanced interrogation. There you go. Enhanced you go. interrogation techniques is what I do to you. Yes. In regards to Robin Thicke, but going yeah, back I to think your I'm thing, I'm okay with that. <laughs> so you, what were you proposing? I got lost in the. Um, in I'm, the Robin I'm, esse- Thicke. I'm essentially proposing that before we worry about people coming in from outside who may well not have done anything because it's not individualized in any way, Mm -hmm. maybe we focus on people domestically who we know individually have done crimes or at least have evidence that they have committed crimes and prosecute them. It sounds like a revolutionary idea. Oh, revolutionary. We could could set up a system, we could call it, say, the criminal justice system (laughs) and have courts and everything, and it would be fabulous. Oh, absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Um, So this brings up an important broader point um, to do with this very vexed question of what is what are the privacy rights that non-citizens really have? Um, Or more accurately, what rights do they have that the U.S. government feels like it is bound to respect? Exactly. Right now. And one of the elements of the executive orders, this was in a different one, mm-hmm. um, was asking government departments to revise their policies to make sure that they are not mm-hmm. giving to non-US citizens any kind of privacy rights. Yes, you're absolutely right. There was so Trump um, signed an executive order that focused on illegal immigrants and um, the section that you're talking about, I believe, is about uh, the privacy protections that would not be extended to non-citizens. Is that correct? Right. Yes. Um, Very, very problematic. And you can get into – so this is – so section 14 of that order, this is what it says. And you can probably go into more of how this might affect um, Europe, the European Union and whatnot. So this is what it says, quote – Agencies shall, to the extent consistent with applicable law, ensure that their privacy policies exclude persons who are not United States citizens or unlawful permanent residents from the protection of the Privacy Act regarding personally identifiable information, unquote. So my first question to you, do you, could you please explain to our lovely listeners what the Privacy Act is? Okay, the Privacy Act um, was passed in 1974. It was in response to the scandals relating to Watergate and the fall of Nixon and also a program that was uncovered at that time called COINTELPRO. It was an FBI program where they had systematically spied on the activities of student activists, of black nationalist groups, um, and also of civil rights groups and personally and in a very detailed and rancid way on Martin Luther King himself. Uh-huh. Um, so um, for, people were given the individual right to request and to view their FBI file um, and the um, – and um, certain principles were set up in the Privacy Act – 
um, f- with relation to data that the government had, um, principles along the lines of, well, they, people should have a right to review the information. Um, if you, and a process was set up, um, f- whereby, um, government departments could request to be exempted from the Privacy Act. They had to publish a notice and give an opportunity for public comment. And in the last year, in fact, the FBI has asked for its massive new facial recognition database for that to be exempt from the provisions of the Privacy Act so mm. nobody outside the system gets to look at it and see whether it's accurate um, and have any ability to change what's in it. Um, now... When it comes to um, the privacy rights of non-citizens, um, this runs into some very deep problems in US-EU relations, as you were alluding to. Yeah. And this is why. Um, back in 2000, there was something that was passed in the EU called the Data Protection Directive. Okay. And that gave... These sorts of Privacy Act rights to EU citizens to be able to um, review and challenge the data that um, EU companies held on them. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the hugest of deals at the time because it was, it was the dot-com boom, but we hadn't had the level of mass digitization of data that we have now. Um, but they could see that this was an issue that was going to come up. Now... This presented a problem for U.S. companies who hold data on EU citizens. Would they be required to change the whole way that they do things in order to comply with EU law or or if they were going to follow just U.S. law and not protect the rights of EU citizens whose data they were holding, then would they be allowed to do business in the EU at all because they would not be compliant with EU law? So... A compromise was developed, which was called Safe Harbor. Ah, uh, I, I was reading about that because that was right before this privacy shield, right? Yes, okay. we'll get to that. Okay, okay. We'll get I'm, to that. I'm, I'm jumping this gets the gun. messy. Okay. <laughs> um, Safe Harbor allowed U.S. companies who were holding data on EU citizens to self-certify that they were broadly speaking, protecting the privacy of those EU citizens. It wasn't like in a detailed way they had to be complying with every jot and tittle of EU law, but like in broad principles, they were adequately protecting their rights. And as I say, self-certification. Self-certification, okay. Okay. So 2013 rolls around and the Snowden revelations start coming out. And among those revelations is the information on the PRISM program, which suggests that wittingly or unwittingly, several major U.S. tech companies have been sharing enormous volumes of user data with the U.S. government for surveillance purposes. Mm. So a guy called Max Schrems in Europe um, brought suit in Europe saying, this looks like these self-certifications are false. Okay. How can they say that they are in compliance broadly with the protections offered by EU law? And the um, European Court of Justice ruled late last year on the Schrems case. And they said, uh, you're perfectly right. There is no way that this represents adequate protection of EU citizens' rights. Right. Safe Harbor is invalid. 
And that meant that... That was when, 2016? That, yeah, okay. that, was, that was 2016. Um, and um, f- this meant that um, US companies were presumptively out of compliance with EU law, creating massive liability for every well-known company that you can imagine. There were over 4,000 companies that were involved in Safe Harbor. So there was a mad scramble for negotiations to put something, anything in the place of Safe Harbor right. that would enable people to just keep going with something while they figured out what to do more long term. And that thing is called Privacy Shield. Ah, okay. So that's what is potentially threatened by this executive order, correct? Yeah. Okay. So Privacy Shield um, set up, uh, you can't really call it a redress mechanism, um, but they said it was a redress mechanism. And basically it had appointed an assistant secretary of state in the State Department and said, you, Mr. X, uh, are now the ombudsman for any one of the 550 million residents of the EU who wants to bring a claim that a US company has not protected their rights under EU law. Um, in practice, it's been too so soon, and I don't think any claims have been brought. And even if they were brought, he was explicitly barred from judging the claim on its individual merits. All he could do was to check with the tech companies and see that appropriate policies have been followed. The US negotiators did their best to exclude any discussion of surveillance at all in this. They didn't send any negotiators who had any intelligence community involvement, when really that was what the European Court of Justice had been most concerned about. So it's pretty clear that even if Privacy Shield persists, there's going to be another round of litigation within the EU and Privacy Shield will probably be invalidated and they're going to have to do something better. Mm. But if you look at how these discussions have been happening in Washington, and I've been privy to some of these conference calls and I've watched some of the um, committee footage, it's very, very hard for US side negotiators to grasp that there is anything that they need to be doing here because they're really cross with the EU because many of the individual companies of the EU do do mass surveillance of their people and it can be pretty intrusive. And so their default position is, who are you to lecture us on what we are doing? It's not fair. Uh, uh, Sorry, I have kids. Oh, my God. Um, Was that another attempt at an accent or was that you like imitating a child? That was me imitating a okay, child. Okay, we need to make a list on top of not imitating <sighs> okay. an Arab accent. No imitations at all. And then no... I just have to be my natural self on the radio? Are you kidding? But please, I never want to hear that imitation of a wailing child again either. Okay, I'll have to bring on a real wailing child and then we'll have to pay them and that will be child labor. And are you happy with that, Muska? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so... um. So they are not sort of mentally prepared to make the kind of changes that the European Court of Justice would find satisfactory. And then this executive order comes along and it says, oh, non-US citizens have no rights. Yeah. Well, what must the EU negotiators be thinking now? They must be thinking this is a disaster. And all of the tech companies that have spent several months trying to um, set up compliance to this new regime are like, what did we just spend the last few months on? And I was reading that it was uh, more than 1,500 companies, including Apple, Google, Microsoft, have already signed on to the data shield. Right. So about a little less than half of what we're in safe harbor. So there's already damage happening. Yes, yes. Um, so what happens to these cross-border data flows um, 
Well, it's going to be very difficult for U.S. companies. Are they going to have to set up localized data centers? Um, are they going to have to set up subsidiaries in Europe, which will then comply with EU law for their data? Yeah. What do you do about Americans' data in Europe? What do you do about EU citizens who are located in the United States? This is an enormous headache for the tech industry, and it just I comes bet. out of one sentence in an executive order. Well, it, it, speaking about the sentence, though, there is one thing I wanted to ask you about this. So the actual, so the language. Agency agency shall, and here's the important part, to the extent consistent with applicable law, ensure that their privacy policies exclude persons who are not United States citizens, blah, blah, blah. Now, the, the clause to the extent consistent with applicable law, do you think that that is applicable? That could mean that the applicable law they're talking about is the EU, U.S. Privacy Shield. I I have difficulty believing that it would be um, because Privacy Shield is not a treaty. Uh -huh. um, it's not something that has been effectively incorporated into U.S. law. It's just a it was a temporary jury rig fix and yeah. it doesn't really have much status of anything um, in terms of privacy law for non U.S. citizens, um, the the governing text has been PPD 28, which is an executive order. And so if a new executive order comes out, it just updates the previous one. I there's see. no mechanism. There's no sort of discussion. It's just like it's held to update the previous one because that's how executive orders are. Sure. The only thing that would affect this materially to some extent um, is whatever the Supreme Court decides because they currently have a case that is up before them that considers the Fourth Amendment rights of non-citizens. But the factual circumstances in that are very different from cross-border data flows. Right. It considers a cross-border shooting. Mm. Um, the case is Hernandez v. Mesa. Um, and so, so if this is the case that you... You helped write the amicus brief. Um, yeah, Restore the Fourth put in its first amicus brief. But you're to the trying Supreme not to Supreme take credit Court. for it. You're like, oh, but, it was Restore the Fourth. But, no, but he's a, I mean, I, I, I was part of the group that was working on it. But. I think this is a perfect segue for you to describe more about that case because I find this fascinating. Okay, okay, I will do that. I will do that. Hold, hold, hold your horses. Hold, I just, I'm so excited about the fact that you personally, hold all your, by yourself, wrote this amicus brief. Well, me and Robin, but yes, you and Robin. Think. But, um, for, but I will get to that. But let, but let, let, let's just tie off the little bit about yes. the U.S. and the EU. Okay. So um, they need to figure this out. They need to figure out as an administration um, how how their general intent to withdraw privacy rights from non uh, U.S. citizen. Um, it should be traded off against the damage that is going to happen to US EU trade. Right. Um, and the um, potential increased possibility of an adverse ruling from the European Court of Justice right. that will invalidate whatever they come up with as a more permanent fix. Right. So this is a nightmare that at the moment I feel like they're absolutely unequipped to deal with. Oh, yeah. Well, so if, if the, um, the shield is invalidated. Does that mean they're going to 
now be under the safe harbor or is there going to be this legal gray zone where there's no law? No, safe harbor is already invalidated. So there's just going to be this legal gray area where people don't know what's going on. Yeah, tech companies in the US will not really know what they are supposed to do in order to adequately protect EU people's rights. Right. Um, And so... They will probably try to muddle through and hope they won't get sued too much. I mean, it's really hard to know what's going to happen yeah, for them. Yeah, if I were, you have no idea. Yeah, I, if I were their legal department, so I'd be freaking out right now. Oh, yes. And that's why they're all going to be calling George Soros to try to get paid. Well, yeah, that that will obviously help. And, uh, <laughs> and, and Soros can just broker an agreement between all of them. And if he pays enough money to each individual involved in the process, oh, then of course. through massive bribery and corruption, they might get to a solution. <laughs> Thank you for advancing this possibility. <laughs> so let's talk about Hernandez v. Mesa. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm actually not familiar with this case. So the fact oh that you... Oh, my gosh, this I is know. an amazing case. I know. And the fact that you personally, you and Robin Thicke, wrote the amicus brief. Mm-hmm. So the the real... Um, author of the brief um, <laughs> is Mahesha Subaraman, who is the chair of our litigation working group, um, which brings in people from across the country. We have um, for, um, people from big name law schools and law professors and attorneys in practice and some law students to help us out. It's a, it's a fun time. Oh. Um, and You um, need to help a sister out because that's something I'd love to get involved in. Okay, well, you, you just have to say the word. I'll put you in touch. I'm saying the word right now. Okay. Hook okay. A sister Thank up. You. Okay, I will go do on. That. <laughs> um but um this is the really interesting and kind of horrible factual circumstances of the case. All right, lay out the facts. Okay. So, um imagine if you will that you are in a a city that is right on the border. Half the city is on on the Mexico side, half the city is on the US side. Okay. Okay. Um, and though I don't know whether it was El Paso for sure, I think it was El Paso. Okay. Okay. Um, now, um, f- for the record, it was definitely El Paso. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I just want to get you scared. Okay, okay, go ahead, go ahead. Ah, <laughs> uh, you terrify me in so many ways, Muska. I, 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 I pr- thought, I'm I thought we agreed f- it was enhanced interrogation okay, okay. techniques, not torture. But but you must know that I'm obviously very threatened by you, uh, given that you're a capable, intelligent woman. So. Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, like that goes without saying. Obviously. Yeah. So anyway, um, the um, for, so um, there's there's this 15 year old called Sergio, um, for, and um, Sergio was um, well, people disagree on exactly what was happening. According to the family, Sergio and his friends were playing in a culvert and the border runs through the culvert and there's like a, a wall on one side, on the US side. Yeah. Um, and, um, the, and the game was, hey guys, let's run up to the fence and see who can touch it most closely before uh, they get in trouble. Uh, hey, hey, because they're 15. Right. And they're boys. Right. And I remember being a 15 year old boy. But anyway. No, I don't want to go down that memory lane, but no, really, please on. don't. Um, so the, um, for, so what the border patrol say is that, um, they were possibly part of a gang that had been um, smuggling people across the border and that there was possibly some sort of throwing of rocks. But there's no evidence of throwing of rocks one way or another. Right. Um, anyway, um, a Border Patrol guy um, comes, d- comes down from the wall and starts chasing um, the kids. And 
he shoots um Sergio um who is on the on the Mexican side of the culvert from the US side of the culvert. I see. So across the border. Yes. So here's the question. Um there is no mechanism to um hold this guy legally accountable left the government of mexico asked for him to be extradited and the us government kind of went <laughs> no we don't do that um the um for, um for, there was a declination to prosecute for criminal charges by the local da so that's not happening either and so the family wants to bring um what's called a bivens claim under the 4th amendment um against the um this agent of the US government agent mesa um for um seizing the person of sergio by shooting him and having him die right um so, so um for, this this is the only way there'll be any accountability for what happens and the question is whether they can bring the claim now this goes back to a 1990 case which i am now going to attempt to pronounce oh here we go yes uh, and if you fuddle this yeah it's going to be so humiliating because that'll be 3 out of 3 and then where exactly. will i be exactly i just you know you 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 really think i shouldn't go there don't you i just okay just tread lightly okay so this case is called verdugo orquides You said that with authority. I can't tell if it was your British accent that made that sound good or or what, but you did well. Say it one more time. Verdugo Orquides. Okay, so that's the only precedent there is? Well, it's not the only precedent and I'll get to that. Okay. But um it is um for a Supreme Court case from 1990. Okay. Um it were the ruling was 7 to 2. um for, though there was a plurality opinion for four and then three concurring opinions to make it extra complicated <laughs> um in the plurality opinion um what they said um so verdugo kides was um an accused drug dealer and he was arrested in mexico and the question was whether the us government needed a warrant in order for us government agents to arrest him in mexico and take him back to the united states right that was the question and the plurality opinion said no they did not need a warrant because the 4th amendment does not apply to mr verdugo orquides because mr verdugo orquides has no substantial voluntary connections to mm. the united states okay and if he did if he'd come there on a student visa to study or if he'd come visited relatives a bunch then they'd be dealing with a different question so was it a jurisdictional issue that he had no connection with the state and that's why um he did not have any connections with the united states okay um in in dissent um one of your favorite justices brennan oh. um uh backed up by Thurgood Marshall so some pretty oh, heavy guns yes. um said look this doesn't any this doesn't make any sense you can't say he has no connection to the united states because the united states wanted to arrest him and put him in jail that is the connection right. and if the us government wants to act then it is constituted by the constitution mm-hmm. and therefore they cannot act outside the constitution right when acting right I love this dissent. It's a fantastic dissent, but it only got two votes. Ugh. Okay. I always like reading the dissents. I know. <laughs> um now the um the majority um Who wrote the majority, do you know off the top of your head? It was Justice Kennedy. Of course. 
Uh, he's often the swing vote. He's always the swing vote. Okay. And um, for, and what uh, Kennedy said, well, you know, not not saying that this substantial voluntary connections thing really makes sense, but let's look at whether overall this was reasonable. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, and overall, it is not reasonable to give him Fourth Amendment rights, so he doesn't have. So, so let me get this straight. He just said, "Is this reasonable?" No. Yeah. Kennedy, you need to yeah. come over to the. You need to come over to the the good side. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Especially since we're now at a four four, we need you to come over to the good side. Well, you know, he 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 loves to split the difference on things and oh. to base things on particular facts that will never be repeated again. So <laughs> now it um for it is what twenty seven years later, yes. and um for and so um Sergio's family they don't really have substantial voluntary connections to the United States. I mean, they lived on the Mexico side. They had a bit of family on the other side, but right. Sergio had never been to the United States except when he stepped over the border and got shot. I mean, right. that's the only documented instance. Right. Um, that's not really a substantial voluntary connection unless you're Justice Brennan right. um, and you believe it is. And so um, on what basis can the family uh, um, bring a claim for... Um, for the for Sergio having been shot by a U.S. border agent. What is the now, the the implications of this case are massive, because let's note the whole structure of NSA surveillance is premised on the notion that if you are non-citizen, you don't really get Fourth Amendment rights. Right, and so they can search and seize whatever they please. Right, if that distinction is blurred, if we have Blurred, blurred lines, lines coming in, then the NSA might get very anxious about the legal basis for what it is doing. And that is a point that has been made. Right. Um, now, in our amicus brief, um, what we actually argued was something unusual. We are trying to appeal to, um, of all people... <laughs> Kennedy? No. Oh. Keep guessing. I, I, I don't. I don't even know. We're trying to appeal to Clarence Thomas. Oh Lord. Um. There's no such thing. But go ahead. Sorry. So. I mean, I have full faith that your Emmy's brief is going <laughs> to reach Clarence Thomas. No. So look, um, Clarence Thomas is an originalist, and he, um, and he, um has some skepticism about rights claims under the Bill of Rights, it's okay. safe to say. Uh, safe um, to say. So um, what we have done is to construct an argument saying, look, this is an arbitrary deprivation of life by the US government. Ah, okay. It's not really about the Bill of Rights and whether you can bring a claim under the Fourth Amendment or the Fifth Amendment or right. which amendment you're dealing with. It is an arbitrary action by government. Ah. And even if you go back before, long before all of this aggressive rights jurisprudence that we saw in the 20th century, and if you look at these hoary and anti antique precedents, then... The U.S. government back then didn't really consider itself exculpated from arbitrary deprivation of life of foreign citizens. Right. So that's really the approach that we've taken. That's very interesting. Yeah, it, it was an interesting brief. But um, there, there will be oral argument on this case coming up, um, I think, at the end of next month. 
Oh, that's very so soon. So it's going to be really soon, and then there'll be a decision a little a little time after that. So it, it, it so it is probably going to come up before there is a new justice on the Supreme Court. I was just going to ask you about that. Okay. And uh, though that depends on exactly when the oral argument happens relative to um, how long the Senate takes to confirm a new Supreme Court justice. Right. So um, it will be really interesting for our work as surveillance activists to see what kind of decision comes out of Hernandez v. Mesa and to see what kind of circumstances will allow um, non-citizens to assert Fourth Amendment claims. Um, one argument that has been made by the um, by the plaintiffs' attorneys um, is that a case called Boumediene in two thousand five is applicable here, um, and Boumediene was a Guantanamo Bay case. Okay, and it ruled just five to four, Kennedy in the majority, um, saying that. Guantanamo Bay detainees could assert oh. a right to habeas corpus. Okay. So they could assert a right to have the the basis for their detention um, considered by an independent judge and a right to release if they were a judge to be innocent on the basis of that evidence. Is that a fair characterization of habeas corpus? Yes. Um as many people know, in practice, even if you got a judge to be innocent at Guantanamo, that didn't automatically mean that you got released. And there are still four people there today right. who have been cleared for release. But because Congress has barred their release into the United States and no other country will take them at the moment, they're still at Guantanamo. Right. Um, but the question then becomes, if Boumediene allows non-citizens to assert the right of habeas corpus, what other rights can be asserted by non-citizens? And it opens that whole can of worms. Oh my, we need to have a, a noise that, that, that is a can of worms. Yeah. Because I feel like that'll come up. Yeah. But instead, could we go like... Okay, for the record, like add that. this to the list of things you're not allowed to do. Because that you is don't not... don't allow me to have any no, fun. Or, in yeah. what world was that worms coming out of a can that was like a like haunted house Look, worms do Halloween. not make any noise they don't even have mouths muska oh my gosh anyway so i need that to be fact-checked we okay. need to get an intern to see if worms have mouths um i do not think that they have mouths but if they turn out to have mouths it would not sound like that well that's probably true but then we can at least get worm sounds and oh play God. that on air Okay, but back I think this is our most important priority for the next week. Even more important than Robin Thicke? Even more important than Robin Thicke and more important than any of our surveillance work. We need to establish whether worms have mouths stat. If any listener out there can tell us, we would love to hear your opinion specifically Absolutely. about that's right. About Go worms. to www.privacypatriots.org and you will find ways to get in touch <laughs> with us and tell us whether worms in fact have mouths. <laughs> so okay. going, going back to this case, I still find it fascinating that because Kennedy is often the swing vote and in one case he voted in one way and the other case he voted in the other way, why you you didn't choose to sort of think of Kennedy or, or tailor your amicus brief towards something that could bring him over? Well, you know, the facts of the case are horrible and they are yeah. what they are. Um, for, and if Kennedy is motivated by the facts of the case, then that may be a positive thing for us. But honestly, 
the the plaintiffs' attorneys and many other amici in the process were already articulating arguments that I think um, are adequately aimed at Kennedy, and so and so it was a strategic decision to make arguments that we think are very valid and very true, and that will also appeal to Clarence Thomas. Oh, wonderful! So, it uh, just—it's so exciting for me that I know somebody. Who wrote an amicus brief to the Supreme Court of you the United somebody, States? You know somebody who knows somebody who advised somebody who actually wrote still, the brief. Still, that's like you know three degrees to Sonia Sotomayor, and that's all uh-huh. I really. All that matters to me is that I'm close to you. Like Sonia? Sonia. I'm obsessed. Oh, How okay. can you not be? I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has her fans, but I'm all about Sonia, the wise Latina. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm just keeping track of time, and I yes. notice that. Um, there's some some segments that we were going to do. Do you think we have time for that? Yes, I think we do. What we would like to do is to bring this discussion when it comes um, to the matter of the privacy rights of non-citizens to consider the case of a city where 26% of the city is foreign-born and 48% roughly has at least one foreign-born parent, and that is a city of Boston, which you we... just know those stats, like off the top of your head? I have a retentive memory for things like the sounds of worms coming out of a can, oh, but anyway... Oh, jeez. Um, so um, the city of Boston, um, the Boston Police Department recently had a plan to adopt what they call social media surveillance software. And we are going to take the opportunity to bring our guest into the room um this today we have the honor of welcoming greg hausch former anonymous and activist and who seems in conversation with him to know personally every single player when it comes Literally to the discussion of surveillance and policing, it, not only in the city of Boston, but beyond. In the entire universe, I think. Well, that is possible. So the omniscient Greg Hausch presented for your listening pleasure. Welcome, Greg. That might be uh, the... Uh Worst introduction of me of all time in terms of how many lies were told. <laughs> Alternative yes. facts. Alternative facts. Yeah, we don't yes. call them lies anymore. You're yes. in a new world now. I, I know a few people. <laughs> but so this was a really interesting thing, wasn't it, Greg, to um, have the city of Boston first embark upon a process to bid out for social media surveillance and then to back on off on it, partly as a result of activist pressure, partly as a result of um, what the social media companies themselves were doing in terms of blocking third party companies from accessing their fire hose of social media material. So I'd, li- I, I'd like to start off by getting your viewpoint on um, what was going on and, um, for, and what was happening and what we might expect to um, happen regarding social media surveillance in the Boston area in the future. Well, I mean, if I'm towing the party line, then, you know, according to Evans and everyone else, they they really had a hard, deep think about this on their own Mm -hmm. and decided that this was not the best ideas and the best use of the money and time. And they had some more things to... uh, Think about if you if you're actually uh, going with the true facts, uh, a bunch of not activists, the um, facts. not the alternative, yes, not fact. the alternative facts. Then a bunch of uh, activists and other types uh, yelled and rabble roused a lot about this wonderful proposal. But you know, I will say one thing: these proposals we've seen in a lot of cities. You know, yes. random proposals for things that 
never come to fruition because people start yelling and screaming. It's always funny to me that they have to get found when they're already deep in the process, even possibly getting quotes by then. Yes, because they didn't tell the city council about this, right? Oh. They bid they bid it out without having any transparency with them. Who I think they told the mayor. I mean, really? Yeah. I mean, um, for, and, and I was there in the hear, hearing that the city council held is on. Is that it. the same one I was at too? Yeah, oh, that's okay. the one. Um, and they're joined at the hip. Well, of yeah. course, yeah, but uh, the um, the the Boston Regional Intelligence Center, which is a subunit of the Boston PD that would administer this program, um, they had a representative there, David Carabin, who was um, happily saying to the council, "It's okay, you don't need to worry about this." Firstly, everything we're going to do is going to be in line with Boston values. And note, I'm not going to attempt to duplicate a Boston accent here because I know when I'm beat. It's on the okay. list. It's on the list of yeah. things you're not allowed to do. Okay. Um, but um, we're going to do this in line with Boston values. And besides, we have a privacy policy. So don't worry. <laughs> we have a privacy policy. It's all there and everything. And it has many pages, the best pages. We're going to do it in line with values, not we're going to do it in line with the law. You know, note mm. the use of language there. <laughs> the other thing was they were saying, you know, this is okay. This is all material that people have voluntarily put up online. You know, if you put something up on, on Facebook, if you put something up on Twitter, it's public. It's okay for us to go and look and see and see what you're saying and thinking and whether you have any unwise views, that's fine. But if you went into the request for proposals and actually looked at the language of what they were asking the bidders to provide, then it was saying, okay, yeah, 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 we want to do all that stuff. Now let's talk about the dark web. Let's talk about the deep web. Let's talk about lots of data that people are, yes, putting up online, but really in some ways they're trying strenuously to keep private while they do so. And we want that stuff. Yeah, can you add uh, add in all this, you know, stuff that uh, we should probably maybe be able to get away with without too much, but also all the stuff that nobody wants us to see. Yeah, and all of this right. without a warrant, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why would they go through all this trouble to look for something that was already publicly available? Well, yeah, I mean, at, this is not to say that Boston PD and the Brick are not already doing social media surveillance. It's just, you right. know, they just smaller wanted it to be scale easier. and less systematic. Right. They want it to be easier. Yeah, They want a right. search interface for the entire fire hose instead of having to watch all of your Twitter feeds. Yeah, right. or, or having to set up like fake accounts to friend people. And right. that's, a, that's a lot of work to find out whether there are any unauthorized parties happening in Alston Brighton, you know. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. Which they have done. Um, so... Um, this is why I'm normally, normally suspicious of any, um, Facebook profiles, which have like the one picture of a beautiful scannily clad woman, woman who nonetheless seems to have no other Facebook friends <laughs> who then contacts you with a friend, friend request. And so that's just a teeny tiny bit suspicious. I'm pretty oblivious to a lot of this, but it, it even gets my antennae. Is, is that why I keep getting all those requests from them specifically? And then it shows the one friend that's mutual is you. <laughs> is, that, is that how that happens? Yeah, you notice how Alex tried to uh, pretend like one. he didn't friend the scantily clad all woman. Of them. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I shoved that all off onto Robin. That's his deal. Yes, yes, yes. 
So, um, for, so yes, it's happening in a lot of cities and towns around the country, but, um, for, but the social media companies have gotten wise, right, to these third party vendors like Media Sonar and Data Miner and Geofedia that are trying to monetize their feed. And, um, Twitter has, as a matter of policy, now says it will block third party vendors who are trying to sell their surveillance services. And the marketing that they were doing was really kind of like, hey, police departments, do you have any suspicious people of the Muslim faith in your area? Perhaps you have people who are participating in protests on the subject of police brutality or of Black Lives Matter. Would you not like to know more about these people? It was so, so hellaciously creepy. What they were trying. One of the lucky things we have is that the fastest version of Twitter's firehose is specifically data miner. And that's, uh-huh. of course, because, you know, it's the same company. Right. Uh, you know, so, you know, the lead investor in data miner is Twitter. And so when Twitter says we're not going to do a thing, they get to control that firehose at least. Right. Um, and so far they've done a good job of cutting off anyone actually doing the uh, surveillance sales with it so far, but. The one thing we have learned through all of our uh, fun times with surveillance in the last decade is that these are the ones that we see marketing and that we can see publicly. Mm-hmm. There, I mean, I can't believe for a minute that there aren't 10 others that have access to it through some subsidiary, some shell company who isn't doing that. Mm-hmm. And then they're selling it out the back door. We saw stuff like that with Trapwire. We saw that with all kinds of programs uh, in the last decade. And now we've got the whole complex of what is happening with Palantir, the Palo Alto company run by Peter Thiel. Um, and, um, it's de- increasingly deep involvement with various different U.S. government departments providing databasing services for those departments and providing intelligence on the basis of that information. It is quite a system too. I've talked to people who have been able to sit at Palantir terminals for a living before and just, you know, heard what they have access to and the power of how mm-hmm. it searches. And I mean, sounds like a fun thing to sit at if you were, you know, doing anything legal. <laughs> I, I can tell you only superficially from the outside, but, um, I, I was at a, a seminar that a law professor who's a friend of mine was giving, and he had written a paper on how to algorithmically detect unusual behavior. And in this seminar, there were basically like eight people. There was me because I was a a friend of his and a couple of law professors and then five people from Palantir. (laughs) That's disturbing. Okay, that's what Palantir is trying to do then. They are trying to do everything that's data collection and modeling. Pretty much whatever they can tell you about data is what they're trying to do. And they don't seem to really care who it's about or what the rules really say on what they're allowed to collect or search. I mean, I am not a fan, of course, of Peter Thiel in the first place. I mean, you know, look at all the stuff he's done. But I hear he's a libertarian. Well, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, I'm not no, a big fan of Gawker, but you know, at the same time, free speech and all that. Yeah. No, I, I, I just get annoyed about it because I know a bunch of libertarians, and I'm like, really? I think there's not a heavy overlap between self-professed libertarian and designer of surveillance software. That doesn't really. <laughs> no. That doesn't really mesh well. So at the local level, it looks like there are things that activist groups can do to 
make noise, attend hearings, meet with le with legislators, and work to block the advancement of these software technologies in particular towns. One strategy that Restore the Fourth has been employing with some success is to try to encourage cities and towns to pass what we call surveillance oversight ordinances. Um, and these, the city of Cambridge here in Massachusetts is considering one of these. Um, Santa Clara County, California, which is Silicon Valley, has passed it unanimously. Oakland, California, looks like it's going to pass it. And what it does is this. It says, OK, city agency reporting to us. You want to deploy a surveillance technology, broadly defined social media surveillance software would be included, but other things like, you know, stingrays and drones and all sorts of stuff. Um Body cams. Um, you want to do this? You've got to actually have a plan. You've got to figure out how the data is going to be used, whether it's going to be encrypted, how is it going to be shared, who is going to have access to it, what are the policies going to be. And before you deploy it, you've got to bring that plan to us and ask us for permissions at a properly noticed public hearing. Us, the elected officials, because we get a say. And then we get to have an actual vote. And then you have to report back to us and tell us whether you're actually deploying it in the ways that you told us you were going to be deploying it. And if you don't, then that is a misdemeanor. Mm. And Cambridge is contemplating this? Yes. Mayor Simmons in Cambridge has proposed um, this legislation, and it's currently with the city solicitor's department. And they, they'll bring it back to you. have any of the councillors on board with this? Yeah, some of the councillors are on board. And so um, we are hopeful that this is a good time to be moving forward this kind of ordinance, because this is a time when city and cities and towns, um, particularly in blue states, have a high degree of anxiety about the federal government and what the federal government may wish to do. Most to of people. them are currently talking about sanctuary status. Yeah. Right. And so this is like a partner measure for sanctuary city ordinances. Um, it, so it's not just protecting the physical persons of um, local people who are of minority faiths or ethnicities or nationality, but it's also protecting the communications of the people who are within there and honestly even their movements around the city depending right. on the surveillance technologies and it's saying you know there needs to be protocols in place there needs to be at least some basic measure of democratic accountability before you do this thing it doesn't say don't do this thing it just says we need to know and we need to vote i think that sounds amazing do you with that you know policy actually feel the need to introduce it to those cities yourself or are you happy for people in those cities to attempt to bring it up to their mayors to their city councils on their own and then reach back out to you um i think that um anyone who wants to bring that up to their elected officials locally absolutely should um and um we can be contacted on this you can get in touch with restore the fourth at um rt4chair at protonmail.com um, and if you have a ProtonMail account, then you can communicate with us encrypted. So that is an advantage. Um, but we, but we do strongly encourage that. And of course, if you want to move forward with a campaign in your town or in your city, then we have helped several of these move forward so far. So we have some experience for what is involved. And we can help you provide you with sample texts um, help, and help you move through the process. I ask because for the sanctuary city status, there is a wonderful new website called askyourmayor.com. And you mm. literally go up there, put in your name, your address, and they pre-fill in a box with all of your information. 
and then an actual ask that is really well written for your mayor about going to sanctuary status, which links to all the various tools and, and, and text they might need to start to propose this. Mm-hmm. And it figures out who your mayor is automatically and emails them for you straight and it's from what? it. Askyourmayor.com. Ask and it sounds like sounds a fantastic wonderful. tool. That sounds like the kind of tool that could be rolled out for this as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to speak to our partners at ACLU and DFF who are working with us on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and see if uh, we can roll out a tool like that. But that's got to know really the people good. who built that one, and I bet they'd be willing to share for this. Yeah, I'm. I, I, I'm just hoping that it's not like the fraternal order of police who built it. Correct. So. Correct. correct. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an efficient way to get to keep tabs on people with uh, right. that kind of inclination in right. their town. So, um, for, so yeah. The, so, the point that. I think I should be trying to get across here is that you needn't think that there is not anything you can do about the advance of surveillance technologies. There are tangible things that you can do even locally in and in your community. And that is a great strength of the U.S. federalist structure that it is possible to do that. Because I can tell you, Restore the Fourth has a chapter in the United Kingdom, and they're almost completely disabled from pulling this kind of thing because nothing is localized enough for them to get purchase right. on on people with the authority to make decisions about what a police department does and does not deploy. So this is an advantage. We should push it to the hilt. Definitely. I mean, one of the issues we've always had on, uh, I mean, I think this is definitely a, an issue for everyone, but I'll, I'll say on the left, you know, where, where I usually find myself is mm-hmm. the right has done a very good job of building and maintaining local organizations down to the city level of people who are organized all the way back up to the top of the GO, uh, GOP and the RNC. And, you know, about 30 years ago, the Democrats seemed to give up on that. So that local organizing on our side doesn't really exist when, when, when you go to these places. I mean, the Democratic meetings in, in these cities around the Boston area, you will just be saddened at what doesn't get done and how little happens. And huh. so, you know, coming at it a different way with technology like the AskYourMayor.com type of stuff, I think is, you know, our best way forward. Mm-hmm. Also, of course, rebuilding the infrastructure of local organizing on the left would be wonderful. Well, speaking as somebody on the left myself, and I would tend to agree. Um, Can you give your email one more time for any of the the listeners that would like to contact you to see how they can get started? That would be great. So I'm Alex Matthews. I'm National Chair of Restore the Fourth, and I'm at rt4chair at protonmail.com. And we should just do a name check. I'm here with Muska Youssef. Um, who is awesome and who volunteers with us and also with the Boston Police Camera Action Team. Yes. Um, and with Greg Hausch. And I feel disabled from saying anything tangible about him. <laughs> because it would probably be a lie. But oh, activist, Greg, Greg Activist. Hausch. Activist. That a- works. Activist of the universe. There you go. There you go. Um, so you're listening to Privacy Patriots, and we are going to move on to what we call our Patriots and Pariahs section. And we're just going to briefly take five minutes and talk about the people that we think are the a privacy patriot for this week and a privacy pariah for this week. And I have to confess that I did not do my homework, so uh-huh. I cannot think of anybody. I, and I, before <laughs> before we were recording, I was telling Alex how I often can just sit and think of people I can't stand and list them. But then now that I have to think about it, I, nothing comes to mind. 
Well, this is why you and Dick Nixon would have been friends, okay? <laughs> he had his enemies list. He wanted to check it off in bed every night while getting drunk and weeping about burglaries and all the people that hated him. Yes. And so, you know, you could have been there next to him. Oh, of course. We have so much in common. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I have I have my hate list, but I can't think of one that in particular has to do with privacy and encryption. So I'm going to, this week, hand this off to to Alex. And next week I will, uh, or whenever we do our next recording, I will be prepared with a long <laughs> list of of heroes, of, of patriots. patriots and pariahs. Yes. We need music for that too. Mm-hmm. We do. Um, for, for, presumably it should be something brass band like for the Patriots. Don't, definitely, don't, definitely. don't try to mimic it though. Your can oh, of please. worms was enough. No, just once. No, 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 no. Uh, we're running, <sighs> okay, we're running okay, out okay. of time. So you okay. go, go for the gold. Okay. So, um, for Greg and I were talking and we were thinking that, um, one person who has done more than almost any other single person to advance privacy around the world over the last few months is Moxie Marlin Spike. Um, the open whisper systems. Yes. Signal, text secure, wonderful protocols. Hmm. And this is the real stuff. This is so much better than any product that is out there. And we don't get money from Open Whisper Systems. We're not saying that. I don't um, think anyone does. No, nobody <laughs> does. Um, the, um, for, but better than WhatsApp, certainly better than doing messaging over Facebook, um, which I've been known to do. Um, but Signal is a very secure protocol for doing te- not just text messaging, but also phone calls. You don't have to, when speaking on the phone, have a conversation that is always a three-way call between you, the person you're talking to, and the NSA. It doesn't have to be that way. And thanks to Signal, um, everything that you talk about on a Signal call is encrypted and is extremely difficult for any third party to access. So... Um, Moxie Marlin Spike has done terrific work and has pushed it out there without making an enormous profit out of it like Peter Thiel at Palantir. And he richly deserves the title of Privacy Patriot for this week. And I would I would like to add, just because uh, you called out WhatsApp and Facebook, that as of about the middle of last year, both of them actually implemented the open uh, whisper systems signal protocol and the tech secure protocols in their messenger platforms. And uh, they were both uh, reviewed by uh, Moxie and his team and found to be perfectly good implementations of both of them. So those are now actually integrated. If you are in messenger, you can encrypt your chat. It is one of the options. Ah, so it's an opt-in thing though. It's not by default, but it is using signals protocol. So you're getting that level of protection. Okay. We believe. Okay. And that was for Facebook and WhatsApp? And WhatsApp, Okay. Yeah. I still currently use the Signal app itself as I just seem to trust it a little more, but uh, mm-hmm. it has been reviewed, and the team at Open Whisper Systems says both implementations are good. Well, you know, it's good to know. That is good, good news, and I should note that this is one of the really tangible effects of the Snowden revelations of 2013 and onwards, um, that people in the tech community have concentrated enormous effort on rolling out new applications that are a quantum leap forward in terms of usability. I am not a particularly techie person, as I think this whole discussion would have made clear. Um, (laughs) 
But you also don't respond to any of the texts that I text yeah, you. Okay, signal. fine. Look, I'm nearly in my forties, and I don't do all this. I just had to the, add that. This I had to add it in. young hip youth thing oh, of geez. texting, and you'll you probably want me to Snapchat something. I know. <laughs> I, I am forty, and I've got my phone out right now as we talk. Like, what are you? See, what are you talking about? See, here? exactly. There's no excuse. I just, I, I, I just use it as an excuse for uh, what is probably. Probably an underlying propensity towards foginess. How about yes. <laughs> okay. I will get off your lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. And then I can yell at cl- my clouds in peace, okay? Yes. Now, who do you have on your list as a pariah? Well, the difficulty with this week there's is... There's so many, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. There's been an embarrassment of choice. Um, I think... And Greg, you can tell me the extent to which this is fair. The person who I have trained some fire on this week is our newly confirmed CIA director, Mike Pompeo. Yes. Um, Good pick. Indeed. And this is because he has expressed enthusiasm for a broad spectrum of information collection by the government and by the CIA, um, down to the inclusion of lifestyle information. I'm not sure why the CIA is particularly interested in people's lifestyles or whether they would be able to get AI algorithms to derive anything meaningful out of people's lifestyle choices, but that is how he's put it. Um, Google Analytics seems to have pretty good lifestyle information when you turn all that collection on, so I, I think they'd probably be able to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so that is disturbing. And what I think was also disturbing was that... Because of all the stuff that has been happening over the debate over Russian hacking and that sort of stuff, lots of Democrats who otherwise would be quite skeptical of the activities of the CIA have been in a phase where they've been going, the CIA are wonderful patriots and they are there to defend America. Um, sorry, that was another that impression. Was an, yeah, that one was wasn't that, okay? that bad. Okay. That one was, was your best of the day. Yes, that yeah. was yeah. your best of the hey, day. Hey, from a very low bar, I am improving. Um, <laughs> So, um, for, so perhaps the opposition to Pompeo was not as vigorous as it should have been. And 14 Democrats, um, including, I know both of the senators from Rhode Island and both of the senators from New Hampshire voted for his nomination. Um, one Republican, Rand Paul, voted against it. Um, and so he's through, he's confirmed as CIA director. But would you say this assessment that privacy minded people have stuff to worry about from Mike Pompeo is fair? Absolutely fair. This guy wants to actually collect more data than Prism ever has collected before. He is scary to say the least. I mean, I, it was upsetting to me that he got any votes to confirm. Mm. And I think I think this shows that Congress does not does not attach nearly enough importance to the privacy concerns of all of us. But we have a scorecard at Restore the Fourth, which is um, hosted at DecideTheFuture.org, and that rates all Congress members on their votes on surveillance. We don't rate anything else. They can say whatever they like, just their votes. And Pompeo was a straight, flat-out F. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah, just the worst. Yeah. Well, to be fair, if the system were capable of awarding an F-, minus, then <laughs> Sen- Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas uh, would get yes. it. Um, he is marginally incrementally worse than Pompeo, but that's really the field that we're playing in. 
Yes. So um, Trump in his choices is really not going in his nominations for um, people on the libertarian side of the Republican Party. In fact, he seems to be consciously going for people who have some of the worst track records on these kinds of issues. And we need to know that. Yeah. He is not draining the swamp. He is dredging the swamp. Perfect. <laughs> He's making it a more beautiful swamp. Yes. You know, I would like to add a pariah. Just this is a personal one uh, that, okay. that I mentioned okay. to these, on your these two oh, earlier. Sean. Mr. Nixon, oh, God. come on. Here we go. I gave a talk at the uh, Biometrics and Law Enforcement oh, Conference. Oh, you told uh, us this story. This Monday. is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. And the very first speaker was William Graves, Program Manager and Chief Engineer of the U.S. Department of Defense. During his talk, he was talking about the storage of the millions and millions of biometrics that they have on foreigners, specifically iris scans, face scans, palm prints, fingerprints, uh, some DNA samples, but not much because he uh, believed that the privacy policies were in his way. Um, and then about halfway through his talk, he uh, got a question from the audience. And this question was, does that database store any information on Americans? And it was asked by someone who quite honestly sounded like they wanted it to because they wanted access to this. <laughs> and his response with a smile and an unbelievably disturbing smirk on his face was, well, no, that's the party line, but see me afterward. Wow. Right. Of course, the implication so is pretty clear there. Yeah, I thought you were going to tell, is this the same guy that told that awful joke? Oh, it's the same guy, yes. His, I thought uh, you were going to tell us the he, joke. Yeah, he ended his uh, talk by this saying This is unbelievable. Here, listen to this. They have to collect all this data at the checkpoints, uh, which includes biometrics of anyone in the theater of battle. So Afghanistan, Iraq. They get your iris scans, your fingerprints, everything as you pass. So they can verify who you are and let you into the green zones. And his joke was... That when SOCOM runs into someone who doesn't want to give their biometrics, you just slam them on the ground and stomp on their neck and their eyeballs pop up. Then you oh can get the uh, iris scan. Yay. Did anybody laugh at this? Uh, half the audience laughed. And then my wife stood up and screamed, uh, you aren't seriously joking about that. And everyone looked at her funny. That is the most mm -hmm. terrifying thing. I can't even. Who even jokes about something like that? William Graves, uh, chief engineer of the U.S. <laughs> Department of Defense. That's it. Wow. I think that is an excellent is an nomination ex for yes. Provider of the, of the Week. But I think this goes to show that once you come into the system of people who all think that massive data gathering is appropriate and should be encouraged, then that becomes a mutually reinforcing world where it seems natural to make jokes like that. And it seems natural to go, hey, yeah, Americans too, why not? Um, and to just not think anything of it because you're out to catch the bad guys and the end justifies the means. They also aren't used to having any uh, dissenting opinions at that conference. This is the first right. time they've invited someone like me to uh, their little <laughs> inner circle there. Yeah, you so were saying you were you were saying that you thought maybe it was a hoax or some kind of joke. Yeah, but at first, <laughs> I was definitely thinking, you know, I'm going to walk in here, say one thing, and get arrested. <laughs> Can you tell them what your um, PowerPoint slide said? Oh, the title of my talk to <laughs> the uh, Biometrics and Law Enforcement Conference uh, was "You're Doing It Wrong." <laughs> 
Isn't that wonderful? If you yeah. ever write a memoir, that needs to be the title. <laughs> oh, G- Greg's memoir, if ever written, I would urge everybody to go out and buy it. Oh, so I think course. it would be fascinating. Of course. Uh, but I think is there, we can, we can joke about they, Amazon. They, uh, they they gave me a book deal and they paid the advance and everything. What? But I was the second uh, book deal that they actually signed with their publishing arm. So when I walked into their offices, there was a amazing reception area. Yeah. And it was on this floor of a building in New York. But if you opened any of the doors out of the reception area, the entire rest of the floor of this building was empty. They were renovating and they'd stripped it down to just literally support beams. So I was in there early. Yeah. Uh, Tim Ferriss had signed the first contract oh, yep. with them. So he was in like the day before me. Wow. They didn't have their contracts in order. So the contract that I got did not have a delivery date. Oh, uh, like I was under no penalty not to deliver. <laughs> so I sense where this is going. So the way the advances work is you get basically a, a 25% of it up front. You start working, you deliver a manuscript, you get another 25%. They edit, you get another 25%. They publish, you get the rest. So it's not all up front. Yeah. And um, so we had gotten to that second point where we had 50%, me and my co-writer, Barrett Brown. And someone at corporate was starting to, you know, make some noise about the content of what was getting through here and how they didn't realize that the publishing arm had signed me and they were kind of scared. Won't hackers come after us if they don't like the book? And uh, I said, well, I don't have to give you a book anyways. And they said, wait a minute. What's going on? And I said, the contract itself uh, doesn't have a delivery date. It specifically doesn't even have a date for my second and third and fourth payments of the advance. Like it literally (laughs) just lists these things that I can claim I've already done. And so I'd like my money. Nice. And they ended up having to pay me out uh, the rest of the advance, uh, which again, split with Barrett there. And uh, and then I haven't delivered them a book yet. And that was like three years ago. Wow. Okay. And okay. there's nothing they can do about it. Uh, I technically also, because the contract was this bad, went to another lawyer and had him review it. And I actually own all my content. So everything I've created so far, uh, if I don't deliver it to them, uh, I can do whatever else I want when they decide to drop the contract and they don't own a thing. Really? Even the artwork that they designed for the cover, I own. Nice. They really did not know what they were doing in that first week. Nice. I've heard their contracts are a lot better now. <laughs> I imagine they would be. Okay, we're going to wrap this up, guys. It has been a real pleasure to be talking with you. Yeah, this um, is wonderful. And we hope you, our listeners, enjoyed episode four of Privacy Patriots, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Thank you for listening. We hope to have you join us for the next episode. Head over to www.privacypatriots.org where you can get further connected with us on Reddit and Twitter and Facebook. Keep watching The Watchers and stay tuned as we give you the information you need to keep your information your own.